Chapter Thirty of The Devil's Garden by W. B. Maxwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com. Chapter Thirty. Then Dale lived again for the hundred thousandth time in the thoughts and passions of that distant period. The forest glade grew dim, vanished. He was lying on the grass in a London park and Mavis' confession rang through the buzzing of his ears, through the chaos of his mind. It seemed that the whole of his small imagined world had gone to pieces, and the immensity of the real world had been left to him in exchange, crushing him with an idea of its unexplored vastness, of its many countries, its myriad races. And yet, big as it all was, it could not provide breathing space for that man and himself. Soon this became an oppressive certainty life under the new conditions had been rendered unendurable and then there grew up the one solid determination that he must stand face to face with its enemy and call him to account it must at last be man to man he must tell the man what he thought of him call him filthy names strip him of every shred of dignity and strike him a few blows of scorn might suffice a backhander across the snout a few swishes with a stick a kick behind when he turned. He was too rottenly weak a thing to fight with. His mind refused to go further than this. However deeply and darkly it was working below the surface of consciousness, it gave him no further directions than this. He got rid of his wife. That was the first move in the game, anyhow. He did not want to think about her now. She would be dealt with again later on. At present he wished to concentrate all his attention on the other one. He took a bed for himself in a humbler and cheaper house farther west, a little nearer to the house of his enemy. And almost all that day he spent in thinking how and where he should obtain the meeting he longed for. He understood at once that it would be hopeless to attempt such an interview at Grosvenor Place. In imagination he saw himself escorted by servants to that tank-like room at the back of the mansion the room where the man had treated him as dirt, where his first instinct of distrust had been aroused, where all those photographs of girls had subtly suggested the questioning doubts that led him onto the suspicion and discovery. The man would come again to this room with his tired eyes and baggy cheeks and drooping lip, would stare contemptuously, and at the first words of abuse he would ring a bell, call for servants, call for the police, and have the visitor ignominiously turned out. Policeman, this ruffian has been threatening me. He is an ill-conditioned dog that I've been systematically kind to, and he now seems to have taken leave of his senses and accuses me of injuring him. For the sake of his wife, who is a good, respectful sort of person, I do not give him in charge. But I ask you to keep an eye on him, and if he dares to return to my door, just cart him off to the police station. No, that would not do at all. He and Mr. Barradine must meet somewhere quietly and comfortably, out of reach of electric bells, butlers, and police officers. That first night after the confession he slept sound and long. In the morning when he woke, feeling refreshed and strengthened, his determination to bring about the interview had assumed an iron firmness, as if all night it had been beaten on the anvil of his thoughts while he lay idle but he was no nearer to devising a scheme that should give effect to the determination. Mr. Barradine had said that he was going down to the Abbey tomorrow or next day, Friday at latest, 
and in the course of this Wednesday morning Dale decided that the interview must be delayed. It was impossible up here. It would be much easier to arrange down there. He must wait until Mr. Barradine went down to Hampshire and go down after him. He would call at the Abbey where the man would be more accessible than up here, and by restraining himself, by simulating his usual manner, by lulling the man to a false security, he could lure him out of the house, get him out into the open air, away from his servants, perhaps beyond the gardens and as far off as the park copses. Then, when they were alone, they too, at a distance from the possibility of interruption, Dale could drop the mask of subservience, turn upon him, and say, Now! No, that would not do. It was all childish. For a thousand obscure reasons, it would not do at all. Then, brooding over his wife's confessions, the things she had merely hinted at as well as the things she had explicitly stated, he remembered how in the beginning the wood near Long Ride was their meeting place, how the man had met her there, and led her slowly beneath the trees to the cottage of the procuress. And then an inspiration came, a note to be sent in his wife's name as soon as Mr. Barradine got home to the Abbey. Meet me in the Westgate Copse. I want to show you my gratitude, or I want to thank you again, something of that sort. Meet me at the end of Northride by the Heronry. I will be there if possible four o'clock tomorrow. If not there tomorrow, I will be there next day. Mavis. He wrote such a letter in a hand sufficiently like his wife's. Yes, that would fetch him. The old devil would have no suspicions. Then a cold shiver ran down his spine. It was a thought rising from the depths, warning him, terrifying him. The note would remain afterward. If Mr. Barradine did not destroy it, and very likely he would not do so, the note would be found afterward. But after what? He tore up the note, tore it into tiny pieces. It seemed to him that he had escaped from a danger. His plan had been the idea of a madman. But why? With his skin still cold and clammy, he found himself whispering words which sounded explanatory, but which did not explain. Suppose a mistake occurred. Yes, suppose a mistake occurred. Then, trying to think quietly and sensibly, instead of in this fluttered, erratic way, he forced himself to interpret the real significance of the whisper. Well, suppose he struck too hard and too often. But again there came the blankness, an abrupt check to thought, the depth refusing to give anything more to the surface. He decided that he would go down to Hampshire secretly, letting no one know of his movements. And, stationing himself at some likely spot near the abbey, he would wait till chance brought them face to face. Yes, that would do. Almost immediately he chose Hadley Wood as the place to hide in. Instinct seemed to have suggested the wood rather than any point nearer to the abbey, and instinct now ordered him to go there and nowhere else. It was a likely road to so many parts. It was full of good hiding places, and although it was tricky with its close thickets suddenly terminating on the edge of unexpected open spaces, he knew it all as well as the back of his right hand. He could lie snug or range about cautiously, seeing but unseen and he would not have long to wait before the grand gentleman passed by on his way to or from the Abbey Park. He had got it now. This was right, and he laid all his plans accordingly. 
First he pawned his silver watch and chain, so obtaining a little money without bothering anybody. The pawnbroker's shop was in Chapel Street, and he went on along the Edgware Road and up a narrow street in search of a shop where he could procure a suit of old clothes. Here again it was as though instinct guided him, because he had no knowledge of London and did not know where to look for a slop shop. But he pushed on, noticing that the houses were shabby, and feeling sure that he would soon find what he wanted. And this happened. All at once he was among the second-hand clothes. Every shop on both sides of the street invited him. The whole street at this sordid end of it was trying to help him. For a few shillings he bought just the garments that he had imagined, loose and big made of drab canvas or drill, the suit of overalls that had been worn by some kind of mechanic with two vast inside pockets to the jacket, in which the wearer had carried tools, food, and his bottle of drink. Dale also bought a common soft felt hat, a thing you could pull down over your eyes and ears and make into any shape you pleased. When he put on the suit and the hat in his bedroom, he felt satisfied with their appearance. He said to himself, After I have slept out a night, I got plenty of earth stains and muck on this greasy old canvas. I shall look just a tramp wandered from the high road and no one will recognize me if they do chance to see me. That is, unless I take my hat off. And I don't do that until I take it off for the purpose of being recognized by him. He locked the suit of overalls and the slouch hat safely in his bag. But next day he brought out the hat and wore it while making a very careful tour of inspection in the neighborhood of Grosvenor Place Mansion. Approaching it from the western side he spied out the lie of the land found a mews that had an entrance in the side street, and judged that this mews contained Mr. Barradine's horses and carriages. This proved to be true. Sauntering up and down and lurking at corners on the side street, Dale waited and watched, always seeming to be strolling away from the house, but glancing back over his shoulder now and then, he saw Mr. Barradine's brougham come out of the mews and stand at Mr. Barradine's door. No luggage was brought down the steps. Mr. Barradine was merely starting for a drive about town. Dale came in the evening and observed the house as he strolled along the main thoroughfare of Grosvenor Place. There were lights in several rooms, and the window of the porch showed that the hall was lighted up. Mr. Barradine had said that he hoped to be able to get home today, but evidently his journey had been postponed until tomorrow. He had said he would go on Friday at the latest. He did not, however, go on Friday. Dale kept the house under observation off and on all day and again in the evening. Mr. Barradine went out driving twice, but the carriage brought him back each time. How many more postponements! Would he go tomorrow? Yes, he would go tomorrow, but this involved more delay. It would be useless to follow him tomorrow because he would never pass through the wood on Sunday. No, he would spend Sunday inside his park rails going to the Abbey Church, walking about the garden, looking at the stables and the dairy. Moreover, Sunday would be the one dangerous day in the woods, nobody at work, everybody free to wander, young men with their sweethearts coming off the rides for privacy, cottagers with squirrels hunting the squirrels all through church time, perhaps. Dale ground his teeth, shook his fist at the lighted windows, and thought, If he does not go tomorrow, I can't wait. My self-control will be exhausted, 
and I shall certainly do something foolish. But Mr. Barradine went home that Saturday. Between ten and eleven in the morning the brougham stood at the door. A four-wheeled cab was fetched and loaded with luggage, and the two vehicles drove off round the corner southward on their way to Waterloo. And Dale felt his spirits lightening and a fierce gaiety filling his breast. The time of inaction was nearly over. This hateful sitting down under one's wrongs would not last long now. Soon he would be doing something. He took quite a pleasant walk through Chelsea and over the river to Lambeth, where, after a snack of lunch, he read the newspapers in a public library. The library was a quiet, convenient resort, and yesterday he had written a letter there to Mr. Ridget at Rodchurch Post Office, not because he really had anything to communicate, but because it seemed necessary, or at least wise, to send off a letter from London. He enjoyed a good night's sleep and lay in bed till late on Sunday afternoon. He intended to travel by the mail train, the train that left Waterloo at 10.15, and went through the night dropping post-bags all the way down the line, and it was extremely improbable that he would meet any Rodchurch friends in this train, but he understood that the dangerous part of his proceedings would begin when he got to Waterloo, and he was a little worried, even muddled, as to how and where to change his clothes, or rather to put on that canvas suit over his ordinary clothes. If he made the change here, and anyone saw him going out, it might seem a bit odd. But then his confusion of ideas passed off, and all became clear. He must change at the last possible moment, of course, and he thought, why am I so muddled about such simple things? I must pull myself together. Of course I don't mind being seen in London. It is down there that I don't wish to be seen. Anyone is welcome to see me till I'm started, and perhaps the more people that see me, the better. He therefore shaved and dressed neatly and carefully, packed his valise with a bowler hat in it, turned up the brim of the common slouch hat, and wore it jauntily. The overalls were rolled in an unobtrusive brown paper parcel to be carried under the arm. And, having paid for his bedroom, he went out at just about eight o'clock, walking boldly through the streets, just as Mr. Dale of Rodchurch, dressed in blue serge and not in his best black coat. Mr. Dale dressed for the holidays, with a rakish go-as-you-please soft hat, instead of the ceremonious hard-brimmed bowler and not too proud to carry his bag and parcel for himself. All straightforward now. It would still be Mr. Dale at Waterloo, depositing the bag at the cloakroom, buying a ticket, and getting into the train with his brown paper parcel. Only Mr. Dale would get lost on the journey, and a queer shabby customer would emerge at the other end. But he allowed himself to modify the plan slightly. It was necessary that he should have a good meal and also procure food to take with him, and for these purposes he went to an eating-house in the York Road. This turned out to be just the place he required, a room with tables where diners could sit as long as they chose, a counter spread out with edibles to be absorbed standing, and the company consisting of cabmen from the station ranks, some railway porters, and a few humble travellers. He ordered a large beefsteak and he ate like a boa constrictor, thinking the while. This ought to stick to my ribs. I can't put away too much now, because it may come to short commons if the luck's against me. Then, after the meal, there came a temptation to hurry up his program and get through some of the little difficulties at once. 
he observed his surroundings. The place was fuller now than when he came in. The atmosphere was thick with tobacco smoke and the steam of hot food. The kitchen was at its busyness, and at the counter the stupid-looking girl in charge was handing over refreshments so fast that it seemed as if soon there would be none left. He paid a waitress for his supper and then went into the dark little lavatory behind the room and put on his canvas suit. Coming out into the room again, he intended to say something about having slipped on his overalls for a night job. But nothing of the kind was necessary. Nobody cared. Nobody noticed. His difficulty was to make the counter-girl attend to him at all. He spoke to her brusquely at last, and then she sold him slices of cold meat, cheese, biscuits, a lot of chocolate and some nuts, with which he filled those two inner pockets of his jacket. They had become his larders now. There were not more than a dozen passengers in the whole train, and no one on the platform at Waterloo took the faintest notice of him. No one noticed him three hours later when he left the train at a station short of Manningley Cross, and soon he was far from other men, striking across the dark country with the stars high over his head and his native air blowing into his lungs. He came down over the heath on the abbey side of the crossroads and reached Hadley Wood just before dawn. He felt at home now, alone with the wild animals, on ground that he had learned the tricks of when he was like a wild animal himself. He knew his wood as well as any of them. He could make lairs beneath the hollies, glide imperceptibly among the trees, crawl on his belly from tussock to tussock, and startle the very foxes by creeping quite close before they smelled peril. So he hid and glided as the sun climbed the sky, and then waited and watched when the sun was high, now here, now there, but always very near the open rides along which people would be passing. And that day many passed, but not the man he wanted. He was three days and nights in the wood, and on the morning of the fourth day somebody saw him. He moved stealthily to the stream to drink, and while creeping back on his hands and knees among some holly bushes by a glade, he paused suddenly. Out there on the grass, so small that she had not shown above the lowest bushes, there was a little girl, a child of about five, in a tattered pinafore, picking daisies and making a daisy chain. Breathless and with a beating heart, he watched her, and he dared not move forward into the sunlight or backward into the shade. She had not seen him yet. She was playing with the chain of flowers. A small wood goblin sprung out of nowhere. A little black-haired devil fired up from hell through the solid earth and out into this empty glade to squat right there in his track. Then she stood upon her feet and admired the length of the chain as she held it dangling. Then she dropped the chain, gave a little cry like the note of a frightened bird, and scampered away, never looking back. Never looking back. But she had seen him. He tried to hope that she had not seen him. He was hungry now. His provisions were exhausted. He had eaten nothing since last night, and he felt excited and fretful. He said to himself, If today my enemy is not delivered into my hands, I must go out into the open and seek him at all risks, at all costs. It was a dominant idea now. Nothing else mattered. But that day the man came. When the day was almost over, when the whole wood was fading to the neutral tints of dust, he came. He was on horseback, sitting easily and proudly, 
and his chestnut horse paced daintily and noiselessly over the moss. Dale took off his hat. Then presently he came out of the bracket into the ride, gripped the horse by its bridle, and spoke to the rider. "'Hello, Dale! But, my good fellow, what the deuce! Damn you! Let go! What are you trying to do?' "'I'll show you! Yes, you!' And violent, obscene, incoherent words came pouring from Dale in a high-pitched, querulous voice. All his set speeches had been blown to the clouds by the blast of his passion. All his plans exploded in flame at the sight of the man's face, the eyes that had gloated over Mavis' reluctant body, the lips that had fed on her enforced kisses. But what did the words matter? Any words were sufficient. They could understand each other without words now. He was holding the bridle firmly, pulling the horse's head round, and he grasped Mr. Barradine's foot, got it out of the stirrup, and jerking the whole leg upward, pitched him out of the saddle. The horse, released, sprang away, jumping this way, that way, as it dashed through the brake to the rocks, the clatter of its hoofs sounded on the rocks, and the last glimpse of it showed its empty saddle and the two flying stirrup-irons. Dale was mad now, the devil loosened him, only conscious of unappeasable rage and hatred as he struck with his fist, beating the man down every time he tried to get up, and kicking at the man's head when he lay prostrate. Then there came a brief pause of extraordinary deep quiet, a sudden cessation of all perceptible sounds and movements. Dale was confused, dazed, breathing hard. That was a dead man sprawling there, what you call a corpse, a bleeding carcass. Dale looked at him. Beneath his last kick, the skull had cracked like a well-tapped egg. As abruptly as if his legs had been knocked from under him, Dale sat down and endeavored to think. Then it was as if all his thought and the action resulting from his thought were beyond his control. In all that he did, he seemed to be governed by instinct. At any minute, someone might pass by. He must drag the body out of sight and the instinctive thoughts came rapidly, each one as a necessity for it arose. He must leave no footprints, or as few as possible. He unlaced and pulled off his boots, and, noticing the blood on them, made a mental note to wash them as soon as he could find time to do so. He took the dead man by the heels and dragged him cautiously toward the rocks, seeking the zigzag line taken by the galloping horse. That was the chance. Instinct directed and explained a task, to make it seem that the horse had dragged him and battered his life out over the rocks. A good chance. Those stirrups didn't come out. He might truly have been dragged by one of them. The track of the horse was lost directly. The rocks began. Dale left the body and cautiously clambered upon the rocks to see if any living thing observed him. Then he took the corpse by the heels again and hauled it over the jagged surfaces and through the hollows, conscious all the while of great pain and finally left it in a cleft, staring stupidly upward. He turned back to the ride and sat down by the rank-smelling bracken where he had left his boots. He was startled when he looked at his feet. Their soles were covered with blood. He thought it was the dead man's blood, but then discovered it was his own. He had torn his feet to pieces on the rocks. He put on his boots in agony, picked up his hat, and limped away through the hollies into the gloom of the pines. Down in the stream, with the water rippling over his ankles, he stood and listened. What to do next? They had not yet discovered the dead man, but it seemed to him that they would do so in another minute or two. 
He tried to think logically, but could not. It seemed now necessary to get clear away before the body was seen, get as far off as possible. Vaguely it occurred to him that he should wait here till night, and it was still only dusk. But then he had a clear vision of the wood at night, lanterns moving in every direction, men's voices, a cordon of men all round the wood. Yes, that would be the state of affairs when they had found the body and were beginning to look for the murderer. This wood was a death-trap. He forgot the pain in his feet and began to run with the long trotting stride of a hunted stag, careless now of the crash of the bushes and fern as he swung through them. He paused crouching on the edge of the wood, then came out over the bank across a road and into the fields. With arched back he went along the deep ditch of the first field, through a gap, and into the ditch of the next field. To his right lay Vine Pitt's farm, to his left lay the crossroads, the Baradine Arms, the clustered cottages. He ran on in ditch after ditch, under hedges and banks, swinging left-handed in a wide detour, till he came to the last of the fields and the high road to Old Manningley. But he had to wait here. He saw laborers on the road and waited till they were gone. Then he crept through the gap where the ditch went under the road culvert, crossed this second road, and ran stooping on the open heath. The sky was red with terrible clouds, and a wind followed him, keeping his spine cold, although all the rest of him was burning. When he looked back he fancied that he saw men moving, and that he heard distant shoutings from Beacon Hill. Rain fell, not much of it, just showers wetting his hands, and mingling with the perspiration in front, but making him colder behind, and he muttered to cheer himself. That's luck, that'll wash away the blood. Yes, that's luck. Yes, I must take it for a good sign, bit of luck. He walked and ran for miles, over the bare downs, through the fertile valleys, and alongside the other railway line. And late that night he got into a feeding train for Salisbury, where, he was told, he would catch a West of England express for London. There was delay at Salisbury, and he ate some food and drank some brandy. Then at last he found himself in the London train, in an empty compartment of a corridor coach. He sat with folded arms, his hat pulled low on his forehead, his eyes peering suspiciously out of the window or at the door of the corridor. Whenever anybody went by in the corridor, he stooped his head lower and pretended to be asleep. There were strange people in this train, soldiers and sailors from Devonport, some foreigners too, or people dressed up to look like foreigners, numbers of men also who kept their heads down as he was doing, as if for some jolly good private reason. Who the hell were they, really? Detectives? The train was going so fast now that it rocked to and fro, and hummed and sang. But it seemed to Dale to be standing still, to be going backward. This illusion was so strong for some moments that he jumped out and went out into the corridor to look down at the permanent way on that side also. The lamplight from the train showed on both sides that the sleepers, the chairs, the gravel slipped and slid in the correct direction. The train was flying, simply flying along the inner uptrack of the four sets of metals. I mustn't be so foolish, he kept saying to himself. I'm all safe now. A sudden noise of voices drew him to the corridor, and he stood holding a handrail, watching the leather walls and the gangway that led into the next coach leap and dance and bob and sink while he listened eagerly. The roar of the train was so great here 
that he could not catch what the hidden men were saying, but he understood that they were sailors making too much noise and a railway guard rebuking them. It's nothing to do with me, he said to himself. Why am I so foolish? He returned to the compartment, sat with his shoulder to the corridor, and brooded dully and heavily. All that fiery trouble about Mavis and her being dishonored had gone out of his mind as if forever. The grievance and the rage and the hatred had gone too. Temporarily there was nothing but a most ponderous self-pity. What a mess this is, he thought. What a hash I've made of it. What a cruel thing to happen to me. What an awful hole I've put myself into. The train swept onward, and he began to doze. Then, after a while, he slept and dreamed. He dreamed that he was here in this train, not fettered but spellbound, unable to move and hide, only able to understand what was happening and to suffer from his perception of the hideous predicament that he was in. Another train on another of the four tracks was racing after this train, was overhauling it, was infallibly catching it. Mysteriously, he could see into this following hunting train. It was a train full of policemen, magistrates, wardens, judges, hangmen, all the offended majesty of the law. He woke shivering after this first taste of a murderer's dreams. His punishment had begun. It was daylight at Waterloo, and he slunk in terror, but things had to be done. He washed himself as well as he could, took off his dirty canvas, got his bag from the cloakroom, and hurried away. No questions were asked, no bones made about giving him a room to sleep at a house in Stamford Street, and he went at once to bed and slept profoundly. When he woke this time, he was quite calm and able to think clearly again. He went out late in the afternoon and saw a message for him on newspaper bills. Fatal accident to ex-cabinet minister. Then, having bought a paper, he read the very brief report of the accident. He stood gasping and then drew deep breaths. The accident! Oh, the joy of seeing that word! No suspicion so far! It was working out just as one might hope. And it seemed that his courage, so lamentably shaken, began to return to him. He felt more himself. He marched off to a post office and sent his telegram to Mavis. Evening paper says, fatal accident to Mr. Barradine. Is this true? The main purpose of the telegram was to prove that here he was in London, where he had been last Friday, and where he had remained during all the intervening time. Its secondary purpose was to put on record, at the earliest possible moment, his surprise surprise so complete that he could scarcely believe the sad news. He gave his utmost care to the wording of the telegram and was satisfied with the result. The turn of words seemed perfectly natural. Then, having dispatched his telegram, he hurried off to call at Mr. Barradine's house in Grosvenor Place to make some anxious inquiries. There were people at the door, ladies and gentlemen among them, and the servants looked white and agitated as they answered questions. Dale pushed his way up the steps almost into the hall, acting consternation and grief, the honest, rather rough country fellow, the loyal dependent who forgets his good manners in his sorrow at the death of the chieftain. He would not go away when the other callers had departed. He told the butler of the services rendered to him by Mr. Barradine, not more than ten days ago. Don't you remember me? I came here to thank him for his kindness. Ah, yes, said the agitated butler. 
he was a kind gentleman, and no mistake. Kind? I should think he was. Well, well. And Dale stood nodding his head dolefully. Then he went away slowly and sadly, and he kept on nodding his head in the same doleful manner long after the door was shut, just on the chance that the servants might look out of the hall windows and see it before he vanished round the corner. He could think now as well as he had ever done. It was of prime importance that no outsiders should ever learn that Everine Barradine had injured him. This guided him henceforth. It settled the course of his life there and then. He must return to Mavis. He must, by his demeanor, cover the intrigue, or so act that if people came to know of it, they would suppose either that he was ignorant of his shame or that he was a complaisant husband, taking advantage of the situation and pocketing all gifts from his wife's protector. No motive for the crime. That was his guidepost. In the night he got rid of the canvas suit and slouch hat. Next day he went home to Rodchurch Post Office and, speaking to Mavis of Mr. Barradine's death, uttered that terrific blasphemy. It is the finger of God. End of chapter 30. Recording by Tom Weiss. Tom's Audiobooks.com.